0: We actually had to fly back from our vacation. We didn't have coats or anything. We bought these really silly hats in the airport because that was all we had to stay warm. And we would just take turns just making each other laugh and cracking jokes. And I think that uh, was a way to sort of create a buffer against all of the things that were going wrong around us and all of the uncertainty we're facing. We knew that we could find these little moments of joy.
1: Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Steve Jobs, and it is, The broader one's understanding of the human experience, the better design we will have. Our guest today, Ingrid Fatelli, explores how the way we design our world influences our happiness. She's the author of Joyful, The Surprising Power of Ordinary Things to Create Extraordinary Happiness, creator of the website Aesthetics of Joy, and she also has an amazing TED Talk that we'll talk about more, uh, Where Joy Hides and How to Find It, which has drawn over 17 million viewers. So Ingrid, welcome. We're really excited to have you on the Elevate podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: So I'm curious, what first drove you into a career in design?
0: That's a good question. I was working in the field of branding and I was sort of in a strategist type role and I spent my day collaborating with designers and I would You know, work on these projects with them and look over at what they were doing. And I thought, that looks fun. (laughs) I want to do that. And so that sort of sent me down a rabbit hole of trying to understand more about the field of design. It wasn't something I was exposed to when I was younger, I didn't really know that you could be a designer. Um, for a living. And so I started to look at all the different kinds of design, graphic design, interaction design, and architecture and fashion design. And I, I landed on industrial design or product design, um, which is really about everything smaller than a building that is sort of a, a physical product that you own and, and how all those things get made. And so that's, that's the field that I ended up uh, choosing to go into.
1: And and who were your like real design mentors? I guess or design idols? If you never worked with them,
0: it's changed so much over the years. And I'm trying to think back then, like who I really who like drew me into the field of design. Um, you know, one of the things that I was interested in at that time was sustainable design, and so I was reading a lot of people like Victor Papanek. And Ralph Kaplan, um, who I think were really at the forefront of raising consciousness about what are we doing when we manufacture something, when we have an idea for something and then we put it on a mass production line and we produce it at scale, like what are the consequences of those choices? I think those are some of my formative inspirations and influences in the design world.
1: Okay. And you've talked about a specific moment in design school that made you kind of first see the connection between joy and design. Can you talk to us a little bit about that moment?
0: Sure. So I was at the end of my first year of design school, and it was a pretty head spinning first year. I had no design background before that. So I was, you know, I was learning color for the first time, I was learning to draw, I was learning how to make models of my ideas and, and bring them to life. And then also trying to understand what made for good design. So at the end of that first year, I had everything that I had made. And you sort of, at these reviews, you stand in front of your table and there's a cluster of people around you, um, a group of professors, and then a bunch of other people who are sort of observing and you just let them talk about your work. And one of the professors said, your work gives me a feeling of joy. And this was definitely not what I was looking for. I mean, I just was talking about, you know, how I was so influenced by sustainable design and I was really conscious of materials. I would have loved for them to say, wow, you know, what material did you make that out of or what material would you envision? Or how, how do you envision this being produced? I was really excited about like those kinds of
1: function. Um, yeah.
0: yeah, function, super functional and uh, joy was like not on my radar at all. But I was really intrigued because I sp- have spent most of my life thinking that joy is this elusive and intangible feeling. And so when this professor said your work gives me a feeling of joy, I immediately started to wonder what was it about the things that I had created that elicited that feeling of joy. Um because I'd always thought that material things were incidental to joy. They were not important. We were often told that material things don't really matter. And then to hear this feedback was confusing. And so I asked, how do things create joy? How do tangible things create intangible joy? And this whole panel of professors couldn't answer the question. You know, they they hemmed and they hawed and they had... uh, you know, lots of hand gestures. But at the end, they just said, you know, it's intuitive. And that answer wasn't good enough for me. And so that's really what started me off on this quest so it was 10 years ago. And it set me off to try to understand what is that connection between the physical world and the emotional one? And how can we use that?
1: I've heard you tell this story about the professors a few times in the speech. What I haven't heard was what the grade was uh, in all this discussion. So, uh, so you got in this debate. How, how did you do?
0: I, all I know is I passed, right? Okay. I mean, I think when, when you're in line school, it's really more, no one's really looking at grades, just trying to survive. So you're just trying to go from, you know, I made it through that year and I made it, I passed enough that I can stay here and keep doing this. So that's all I remember.
1: So another thing that you've talked about, uh, you know, just sort of setting, before we get into this a little deeper setting, the definitions for everyone, can you define sort of how you view the difference between happiness and joy?
0: Sure. It's important because those two words are often mixed up in both in popular culture and even, you know, scientists sometimes use, you'd think that there's just this perfect lexicon um, that scientists use, but... There are overlapping definitions, and some use you know one word and swap it out at a different time. and so um, but broadly speaking, I would say, across the scientific community, happiness is synonymous with something that they call subjective well-being, and it is a broad evaluation of how we feel about our lives over time, and it's more reflective and evaluative, right you're If you asked yourself on a scale of you know one to seven, what seven being like my ideal life right now, and one being like the worst life that I could be living right now, like where are you? That's sort of like how happy you are. Whereas joy is much more immediate. It's um, the way that psychologists often define it is as an intense, momentary experience of positive emotion. Um, So it's much more visceral. You know, we can actually measure it through direct physical expressions. So things like smiling and laughter. And often people will describe a feeling of warmth in their upper body. Um, So there's physical feelings that go with a moment of joy. And I think that that distinction is really important and, and powerful because we often overlook these little moments of joy that we're having. You know, when I do workshops, people often say, oh, I feel that multiple times a day and I don't even notice. So when we actually pay attention to that feeling, we realize we actually feel it frequently through the course of our day to day, it doesn't last forever. It's just these little spikes that occur, but those little moments actually have a lot of power and they, you know, they influence our health, they influence our focus and our concentration for the better. Um, they make us more emotionally resilient when we have lots of them over time. And so I think we often in the process of searching for happiness we often ignore these little moments of joy, and yet they they are one of the things that leads to greater happiness in the long run.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say it seems paradoxical that that if you had many more moments of joy, that you would be happier. And you know, you've w- written a lot about, um, spoken a lot about workplace design, and I think happiness and engagement are, are are used pretty synonymously in workplace. People that are not happy are usually not engaged in their work and not not doing good stuff.
0: Right. right. And yet it's, I think the reason I find the distinction so helpful is because happiness is hard. There's so much that goes into it. Whereas joy is much easier. And if we can start to focus on these little moments of joy and stringing them together and adding them up. And, and you talk about it in a workplace, I think in a workplace, a really powerful thing is emotional contagion. And the fact that our emotions spread to each other, our emotions actually can jump workplaces. I recently read that if you go home and you're with your partner and someone is really negative um, and, you know, really down at your workplace, you can actually transfer that negative emotion through you to your partner, to their workplace. And so, emotions are so contagious. I think that's one of the ways that emotion can be really powerful, both for good or for for ill in a workplace. Um, And so, these little moments are sort of seeds that can start something ideally something really good.
1: Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. It's advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Luxury Beyond Limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. (coughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The Pay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. You know, I'm curious, I don't know if this is something you weighed in on, but you know, you talked a lot about workspaces and how they can affect joy. There's a lot of writing now that's coming out, you know, 10 years later, sort of rethinking the whole open workspace and whether that is, you know, I don't know whether it provides joy or not, but whether it's productive or conducive to good work. Has that crossed into your research or anything that, that you've done in your work?
0: I've spent a lot of time thinking about it because I'm intrigued. You know, I I like to think about what is the ideal workspace um, from a joy perspective. And I think that the open plan office has positives and negatives. I worked in many open plan offices. Um, One of the observations I would make about an open plan office from the perspective of joy and and aesthetics and, and the aesthetics that I study is that We thrive on um, something in natural environments. um, And research seems to suggest that this translates to artificial environments too. We thrive on something called prospect and refuge. And the idea behind this is that we love environments that are open enough where we can see, we have good visibility, but uh, we also need places to take shelter. And so we feel when we are in a really open environment where there are no nooks, no screens, no, no, there's nowhere that offers some protection, we have no refuge. And so I think that, you know, the, the just open box office is, is all prospect and no refuge. And I can see how that sort of creates anxiety. The other problem is that in the man made environment, there are a lot of, things that we find that we don't find in the natural environment. So hard surfaces, you know, hard surfaces made of concrete, glass, these things carry noise. Um, They don't buffer noise. They really carry noise um, in a way that, you know, Natural materials don't so much. And so when we have these sort of hard open plan spaces, you have a lot of noise and that noise can be really stressful. Um, And so I think there are structural features about the way that we build these open plan offices that are also problematic. But I wouldn't say I'm entirely against the open plan office. I'm just, I think there are better ways to do it.
1: Yeah. And I I think there's going to be a lot of new concepts. I mean, the, the problem that a lot of people see is because it's so open... Kind of as you say, they have no refuge. People are putting on their noise canceling headphones. They're not talking to others. (laughs) They're slacking each other. So it 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 sort of defeats a lot of the purposes. I guess people are trying to create their own refuge, you know, where where it doesn't exist.
0: Yeah, exactly. The noise canceling headphones are a a source of refuge when you can't get physical refuge, but. You can see, I think, in offices that have phone booths or have quiet areas or library areas or different kinds of spaces that allow people different modes of work that are more successful. And I think, for example, one of the benefits I would say of an open plan office is it gives more access to natural light. Um, so, in a traditional office, you often have people who are more senior um, have the outer perimeter of the office and they get all of the windows and natural light. And then you have um, everyone else sort of, you know, in cubicles in the middle. And those cubicles are, I wouldn't say those cubicles are much better in terms of what they offer. Um, There's still noise that carries over the barriers, um, but they're gray and they're enclosed and they have little light. And so I think one of the benefits of an open plan office is often that, you know, they... They democratize access to um, some of the most precious resources in a building and and light and views are two of those things. So I think there are ways to do it um, where you get some of the benefits, but you also give people spaces to take cover when they need to focus or have
1: quiet. Interesting. So, you started researching this. Um, It led, I assume, to your TED Talk, "Where Joy Hards and How to Find It," which became a huge success. Um, was it your research that was the inspiration for that talk, and and did you expect such a incredible result from it?
0: Well, I think you never know. It's such a vulnerable thing putting an idea that you've been working. I mean, I've been working on that for at that point nine years and change, almost ten years, and so. Um, it's such a vulnerable thing to put it out there and uh, you don't know what people are going to resonate with or connect with. But I had finally finished my book. I actually finished writing the book just a few weeks before Ted. So it was really right before. And I wanted to share this idea, this idea that we often overlook our surroundings. We think of them as just, they're just stuff. And If we knew how much they affected us and if we knew the potential for things like color, you know, paint is so affordable, um, plants, um, some of these things that seem so simple to actually influence our well-being, then I think we would take a very different view of the, the way that we treat both our homes and our workplaces and all of the sort of public spaces that we traverse on a daily basis.
1: That's it. I was going to ask you that. So, it's so you worked on them together. I, I, I actually, I assumed maybe the the TED Talk, you know, drove the book, but because a lot of people launch a TED Talk and then it's so popular, they write a book, but this was a, a parallel process for you.
0: It was. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, it, the TED Talk was in many ways a surprise <laughs> because they asked me four weeks before TED. Um, so I literally was just I had just submitted the final manuscript and I was celebrating. I mean, I'd been working on this book for a very, very long time. This research took me many years. And so I was celebrating that and then I got the call. and Then I suddenly went back into a mode of, oh boy, I have to prepare something really big. So yeah, they were just on the heels of each other. And I was in fact illustrating the book while I was working on my TED Talk at the same time. So um, yeah, but they were in sequence.
1: Most people would love to have that. So that, that was very, very fortuitous. So yeah, you have this best-selling book called Joyful, which is out. It's been a huge hit endorsed by Adam Grant, Susan Cain, Ariana Huffington called it an inexhaustible and exciting guide to what makes life good. I, I mean, there's a lot of stuff in the book, but I'm curious from, as you said, you did a, had to do a lot of research. What was the biggest takeaway from your research or what was the biggest surprise as you did the background research for the book?
0: Oh, there's so many things that have surprised me over the course of this process. One of the things that really surprised me was how deep and unconscious some of the effects of our environment actually are. So, for example, research shows that this is an amazing set of studies um, done at a housing project in Chicago. And the project constitutes a number of identical buildings where trees and grass had been planted at the beginning when these buildings were put in, but then some were not maintained as well as others. And so you have some buildings, all the buildings are the same, but some buildings have nature outside them. They have grass and trees, and some just have sort of dirt lots. And researchers were able to Analyze the patterns of crime um, and also of aggression in these buildings, and what they found is that um, having more nature out just outside the building contributed to a significant decrease in crime and violent incidents around the building and in the building. Um, so, just having exposure to nature somehow influences aggression and uh, and behavior on a very unconscious level. Similarly, when Inmates in a in a prison were given nature videos to watch. Um, aggressive and violent incidents declined by, I think it was twenty six percent. So something is happening, um, and you can see this with many other different kinds of of things. Um, you know, research on uh, the way that order, a sense of order in our environment, affects us. That more orderly environments, um, when People are sort of asked to take a test, um, a math test, and then they look at asymmetrical environments. Um, they are more likely to cheat on the test when they've looked at asymmetrical environments than when they've looked at symmetrical, orderly environments. Um, so these effects are, are really unconscious. And I think I sort of suspected that our environment played a role in our well being, but I to see just how much it influences our behavior toward others was really really sort of shocked me actually.
1: That's interesting. And and you also talked a little bit about circular objects versus angular objects. Yeah. yeah. Um and that that yeah. yeah, can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Sure. So some of these effects actually can be traced to specific parts of our brain, right? And specific neurological responses. So for example, uh, one of the things that I noticed is that um, round things are often joyful. And if you look at childhood, all of childhood is round, right? You've got bubbles and balloons and Ferris wheels and merry-go-rounds and hula hoops and balls. And so much of childhood is round. And when neuroscientists place people into fMRI machines and they show them pictures of angular objects and round ones, what they find is that Um, The angular objects, when people look at angular objects, it uh, stimulates activity in, in a part of the brain called the amygdala. And that part of the brain is associated with fear and anxiety. And yet when people look at curved versions of the exact same objects, that part of the brain stays silent. So something is happening when we look at these objects. And the researchers speculate that there is an evolutionary reason for this, that in nature, things that are angular are often dangerous to us. Um, so antlers and thorns and jagged rocks, whereas things that are round are safe. And so our brains don't have to be on heightened alert and we can just relax and be at ease.
1: Yeah, I thought that point was, was really uh, fascinating in the, in the TED talk and you had some great video around that. So we're, we're gonna take a quick break for a word from our sponsor and we'll be back in a few minutes. Hi, I'm Adam Grant. As a Wharton psychologist, I've spent most of my career studying two big questions. How do we unlock original thinking and build cultures of productive generosity? With those questions in mind, I recently co-founded a pretty extraordinary community dedicated to discovering groundbreaking ideas while trying to make the world a better place. It's called the Next Big Idea Club. Together, my friends Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Dan Pink, and I search far and wide for the eight most original, most essential nonfiction books of the year, and we send them straight to you. We also interview the authors, and we send you the key insights across video, audio, and text formats. And remember, this is a book club, so when you join the exclusive online forum, you get the chance to discuss every season's selections, not just with other members, but also with me, Malcolm, Susan, and Dan. Get insider insights from Dan Pink, Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, and Adam Grant, and sign up for the Next Big Idea Club today at www.nextbigideaclub.com slash 10off They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to Elevate, where we're joined by Ingrid Fatel lee Um, We were talking a little bit about her book, Joyful, before the break, and I'm curious. Um, you know, One of the other things you talk about is that our, our world is designed in the opposite way from a lot of the joyful concepts that you've talked about both in the book and your talk. Can you give some examples of where we're where doing things that don't produce joy? I know you talked about a few, but I think you had a couple more.
0: We were just talking about round things, right? And I think um, it's interesting if you look at work environments, the basic unit of many work environments is the cubicle or the cube, right? So um, so not round at all. Um, and I think we, you know, if roundness is connected to ease and playfulness, work environments often feel like, you know, we can't bring that playful side of ourselves to that space. And so bringing some of these curves in sometimes helps to disrupt that sense of rigidity, um, other spaces that I think are lacking in joy, um, hospitals and nursing homes, um, those are spaces that I think often lack joy. They're so focused on being functional and sterile that they they lose all sense of sort of vibrancy. And research shows that when hospital patients um, have a view, this was a study of gallbladder patients, actually, or recovering from surgery, that when they had a view of nature out their hospital window, that they recovered uh, more quickly and that they le- needed less pain medication. And similar studies have been sh- uh, with natural light have shown the same effect. Um, so having color, having vibrancy in those environments also, I think, helps to make them feel more alive.
1: Yeah. And, and look, it can be hard to put certain shapes where shapes don't exist, but what about color? I mean, that color is simple. So that just seems like, is it, does it seem out of place? Does it seem too weird? I, you know, to put just bright color in places where it's, it's all gray today.
0: It's really simple. And I think that, it's simple, it's cost effective, and you don't have to actually have control over your whole office space to do it. So sometimes people say, well, all I have control over is my desk. Like, what can I do? And I think that things like a really bright coffee mug, it's amazing how one small pop of color can make the whole space around it feel more alive. Um, It's like you've just inserted one little thing. And it's the same way that, you know, putting one little yellow throw pillow on a beige sofa transforms that sofa. Uh, So I think um, little gestures and color is a really powerful way to do it. Um, Research shows that people working in more colorful work environments are more confident, alert, friendly, and joyful than those working in drab spaces. So that's a really good one to start with.
1: And are you seeing companies start to take notice about this? I know, you know, you found some incredible kind of one-off examples, but are the big companies starting to take note of this? Are the Googles and Facebooks or other, are you seeing a movement or, are, are, you know, are, are workspace design people calling you? I'm, I'm curious whether people are starting to get the message on this, particularly since you've looked into a lot of the science.
0: I think there is awareness of the fact that environment is important in a workspace. I think that historically, uh, we've seen it go from being workspaces are spaces of complete efficiency to workspaces are a way to communicate what your brand is and what it stands for. So I think that we're we're the period we've been in is one that um, a lot of the companies at the forefront of this have been you know, creating really branded environments, you know, environments that really speak to what their company values are and, and are trying to use space as a a way to communicate that. And I think that now I'm hoping that we're starting to move into a space where companies are starting to become more aware of the effects of that space on the sort of day-to-day Experience of their employees, um, not just from a functional perspective, but from an emotional perspective as well.
1: So, do you think that we're on a path towards of a, a, a collective appreciation of of joyful design, or or is this is this going to take a little a little longer?
0: I think it will take some time, but I would say that we. I think that over the past few years, I've definitely noticed a greater awareness, and I would say that. Instagram in particular has played a really big role in this, um, in shaping visual culture and making us more aware of the way things look. And I think that's had bigger impact in certain sectors, right? The the travel sector, the hospitality sector, the food. I think all of that has been really heavily influenced by that. Whereas there are a lot of places like hospitals and like nursing homes and like Homeless shelters and housing projects and and many workspaces too that have not really been influenced by this as much. But I'm hoping that it will start to migrate across from these sorts of discretionary places where we go when we have free time and it's fun to the places we actually need to be a lot of the time.
1: Yeah, you know, you just you just made me think of an example where my family and I did some service work last year in in Puerto Rico, and we were at two children's hospitals, and one one was in the uh, suburban uh, area, and and one was in the urban. And the suburban one sort of looked like a nineteen fifties, you know, m- heavy metal doors, everything gray. Uh, y- you can't see into the rooms; it just really depressing. It felt more like a, a like a prison. Mm -hmm. And and obviously this had to do with the resources. And then the one in the city, all glass doors, color everywhere. And even though there was a time difference, it just it was a totally different feeling being in both of those those places. And there's still no reason why the one, you know, like I said, it's hard to replace the metal doors with glass ones, but just just color decoration. I I, I remember we just felt the kids were in no different situations in those two hospitals, but even just going around giving out toys, we felt totally Different in each of those circumstances.
0: Yeah. And I think we don't always connect it to the environment at the time. It sounds like you put the dust together, the but sometimes we just walk into a space and there's something in us that just sinks. Yeah. Right. Um, and I think we have been taught to ignore that impulse. And that is the thing that I'm hoping most of all to help people understand is just to reconnect with that impulse because our ancestors had that those impulses about their surroundings because surroundings, you know, when you're living out in the open in, uh, you know, in the sort of primitive world, when we were living out in the open, our sense moment to moment of what was in our environment, had a distinct relationship to our survival. Um, and so if we were near sharp things that might put us in danger, if, if there might be predators that could watch us that we couldn't see because we had no prospect, right, and we didn't have those views, um, if we are, you know, making a turn into an environment that feels not lush and alive, but dead and sort of devoid of food sources and, and water and light, then, you know, we have those, that impulse to tell us that. And so, even though we don't rely on that for our day-to-day survival, those impulses are valuable because they tell us what messages are still coming in to our unconscious from our senses. And the more that we can make our surroundings um, feel alive, I think the more relaxed um, and the more joyful that we feel.
1: So, I'm curious, when you're dealing with adversity, what do you do to find joy?
0: Oh, great question. Um, well, I think there's one uh, one of the most tried and true things is to try to cheer someone else up. Yeah, because <laughs> I think it was Mark Twain who who gave this advice um, that when you know when you feel when you're feeling down the best thing to do is to cheer someone else up and it works because emotions are contagious and so if we can make someone else laugh um, then that makes us laugh and it sort of creates this cycle so that's one of the I was just thinking back um, when you talked about adversity because it was about a year ago that our pipes burst in our house and our house got flooded and we had to sort of we had just finished a renovation and we sort of had to start over And, you know, my husband and I were really struggling. And one of the things that we did, we we actually had to fly back from our vacation. We didn't have coats or anything. We bought these really silly hats in the airport because that was all we had to stay warm. And we would just take turns just making each other laugh and cracking jokes. And I think that uh, was a way to sort of create a buffer against all of the things that were going wrong around us and all of the uncertainty we're facing. We knew that we could find these little moments of joy. So, I think that's one way. I think finding some way to laugh is really powerful as well.
1: And I'm also curious if you could, if you had an unlimited budget, someone gave you an unlimited budget to design anything in the world, what what would it be?
0: Oh, wow. Um, I think uh, I would be really interested in reimagining incarceration. I won't even just say a prison, but just reimagining the experience. Of that, because I think that we have that in this country really wrong. And I think you can look at Europe and some of the models in Europe and, and see that there are much more humane ways to handle um, the design of spaces to house people who are moving through the criminal justice system. So I, that's the thing that I feel really strongly about and would love to see changed. I don't know that I am the right person to design it, but I could imagine a consortium of people who would be really amazing.
1: Has anyone done a sort of beta? I mean, I, yeah, it's probably hard. Has anyone done a beta prison or tested a radical design, or has it just been too hard of a thing to get done approval for?
0: So in Europe, I think, for example, I've seen one in Norway where um, there are, like actually aren't any locks on the doors it's radically different. And they look more like university dorm rooms than they look like prisons. I think that it's an attitude thing. I think in this country, we have a real penal attitude toward criminal justice as opposed to a rehabilitative attitude. And so when when your focus is on punishment and retribution, as opposed to rehabilitation, what you're going to design is going to reflect that. And so I think that the fundamental underpinnings of the system have to do with our, our values around it. So I think that's part of what would need. So such things exist, um, but I haven't seen anything in this country um, yet.
1: All right. So the last question I always like to ask, and I, I sort of modified this for your industry, but what what is a design mistake that you've learned the most from in your career?
0: The biggest design mistake I've ever made is trying to control everything and trying to think that I could make something perfect. When in fact, that doesn't exist. And I think whenever I've been successful, it's been because I have remembered that people are going to transform the thing that I'm creating and they're going to make it their own. And they're going to it, they're gonna transform it. And so leaving space for that, I think, is the most important thing that I took away. That you're never going to design something 100% and get it all the way there. You're going to get it to 90%. And then people are going to actually, if you leave space for people to make it better, they will as opposed to if you try to design it 100%, people will make it their own and it will end up worse than you imagined it. But if you leave space, people will make it better than you imagined it.
1: Well, that's a great learning. Ingrid, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story and experiences with us today. Your work shows how so many people take design for granted and underestimate how much it has an impact on both our mood and our lives.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
1: So to our listeners, thanks for tuning in to the Elevate podcast with Robert Glazer. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd appreciate if you could head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a review. Uh, You can learn how to review us by following the link on the podcast page, and we'll be sure to include links to Ingrid as well as to her new book, Joyful, and her TED Talk episode right on our site, robertglazer.com. And until next time, keep elevating.